It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This is our first episode back that includes Brittany, Clinton, Sam again for the new year. Woo-woo! excited to have them back and we also have the Goucher Prison Education Program here on the pod uh, to talk to us about their work which is pretty dope. This question of cost, it costs us about, in Maryland, uh, a conservative estimate about $40,000 a year to incarcerate someone per year. GPEP is costing us less than $6,000 per person per year. Before we get started into the news and the interviews, the only word that I have for you as we begin 2018 is to put your plan together. That let 2018 be the year that you have intention behind the things that you do. And that only comes when you start to put your plan together. When you decide how you want to be involved in elections, how you want to take action on the issues that you care about, how you want to support the people in your lives and how you want people to support and love you in your life. So put your plan together. Don't just wait for things to come to you. Don't just hope that you are lucky. Put your plan together. So when I think about my plan, I'm planning to write more. I'm being more thoughtful about where I speak, about the activities I'm a part of, about how I want to show up around mass incarceration and closing the racial wealth gap, and how I am around the people that I love and that love me. But I know that I've spent some time just hoping and praying that things worked out. And that that's beautiful too. But that can't be the only way that we engage in the world. You got to put your plan together. Let's do this. And now the news is me, Brittany Pagnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission, appointed by President Obama to the task force in 21st century policing, and now a leader in education, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist. It's the news. This is Brittany Pagnett at Ms. Pagnetti on all social media. Happy New Year, y'all. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Glad to be back. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. Clint, you know, I'm going to try and lay off on doing the I-I-I on every single episode, <laughs> but uh, I thought I'd just slide it in at the end here. You know, you got my you got my mother doing it now. She was like, I-I-I, wash the dishes. It. I'm just like, oh, Lord. <laughs> my, mo- my mother asked, who's who's your friend? Who's, who's I-I-I? And I was like, oh, okay, we're going to have this conversation now. So people Um, get legit upset when you don't do it now. They're like, we've created a monster. (laughs) Or like I tweeted about you and they're like, is that I? I?" I'm like, sure is. Sure is. Like his name is Clint. But yes. (laughs) I got to I got to brand it. I got to get some T-shirts. We go on teespring.com. I like it. Details later. (laughs) Well, how is everyone's holiday? I got LASIK during my holiday, and it is amazing. I can see without glasses and contacts. I feel like a whole new person. I'm not being paid by LASIK to say that because I can see the emails <laughs> I get. I just really <laughs> like it. Uh, this message so brought I do to you feel by bad LASIK. Though because, right, brought to you by LASIK. I do. Uh, it is weird, though, because I have like a year's worth of contacts that are sitting in the closet, and I feel low-key bad about sort of kind of wasting them, but I feel even better because I can see... 
I'm so jealous because I have the same thing. Wait, wait, what's your prescription? Like negative four. Oh, negative four. Oh, snap. <laughs> Matter of fact, the, we got uh, to trade contacts. <laughs> <laughs> what is it called? What's the agency that's supposed to regulate this stuff? The um, I don't know. One of them. They're oh, not we're doing not much supposed anyway, to share so. contacts. Okay. I'm sure they, they're not paying attention to anything at this point. They're not regulating right. anything. Right. Where were you, Clint? Like, what did you do over the break? I was back home in New Orleans. So this was uh, this was Baby Jay's first first Christmas, obviously, and so so that was fun. It's uh, shout out to all the parents out there because like Christmas and all the holidays with children is a fundamentally different experience. It's amazing. It also is like back in the day. You know, I go home for break and I'm chilling on the couch eating salt and vinegar chips, and now. It's like a very different thing because it's just much more proactive. You are Santa Claus, right? And that's the that's the pretty wild thing is you have this moment where you step back and you're like, dang, like I am Santa. And it's kind of this existential thing, at least for me. Maybe I'm doing too much. But I was like, dang, that's that's deep. I'm Santa. This kid <laughs> is like, you know, waiting for this magical entity. Well, my kid doesn't. He's not old enough to know yet. But theoretically, I've become Santa Claus uh, and... And that's a pretty cool thing. Where were you, Sam? Uh, I was in Florida. So uh, I was in Orlando for about two weeks. And it, it wasn't as relaxing a holiday because, uh, you know, as as we've been talking about over the past several pods, you know, there's this issue with the ballot initiative going on there. And so we sent over 100,000 mailers. And so I was in Florida collecting all of these petitions in the mail and processing them and uh, making sure that they got delivered to the coalition that's submitting them to the county election supervisors. Uh, so it was a whole operation going on during the holidays and uh, it's been going well. And Sam, maybe just for folks who who aren't familiar or are hearing about this for the first time, like give a quick rundown of like what's going on. Cause obviously this is, we know about it, but this is super urgent and important and something that people should know about. Absolutely. So we're in the final weeks of collecting petition signatures in order to put a measure on the ballot in Florida uh, that would essentially end felon disenfranchisement in the state, give about 1.6 million uh, people the ability to vote uh, starting in 2020. Uh, And so in terms of the collecting, there is a total of 760,000 signatures needed to put this on the ballot. About 660,000 signatures have been verified currently by the state. So there are 100,000 more uh, that need to be verified. That doesn't mean that they need to be collected. Most, of the, most, if not all of those, have been collected. It's just they need to be processed. Um, but because of the district requirement, there have to be enough petitions in at least 14 congressional districts in the state. And so there are a few congressional districts where it looks like uh, there may need to be more petitions uh, signed and submitted. And so if you are in Florida, you know people in Florida, uh, tell them to go to florida.rstates.org, uh, download this petition, sign it, mail it in as soon as possible so that it can be counted uh, and so that we can put this on the ballot and win. So, Britt, where were you? I was um, I was home in St. Louis for most of the break. I was actually home for two weeks. I went back a little early um, my, I got the incredible chance to hear my brother, whom you all have spoken to, uh, actually preach a really powerful sermon from the pulpit that my dad used to preach from on the anniversary of our father's death. So, um, it was a very special day. He was incredible. Our whole family, extended family was there. It was very emotional. Um, and then I spent the rest of that week on a lot of phone calls and emails, um, 
making, supporting a lot of people and making a failed attempt to have DACA protected and DREAMers protected before the end of the year. Um, so obviously a lot of urgent work still going on around that, but um, very thankful to have spent it with my family because I know everyone was not able. Um, and, you know, lots of fun and food and games and I won every spades game I played. So it was all in all a successful holiday break. <laughs> The podcast has been up and running over the break, but not with the wonderful full set of the news. So I'm excited to jump back in. Brittany, take us off. Oh, it's good to be back. I missed you all, my brothers. Uh, So it is finally 2018. I know lots of us were ready to escape the hellscape that was 2017. It is finally 2018. And you know what that means Midterm elections. Uh, It's only January, but November 6th, 2018 is coming hard and fast toward us. Uh, And so I just wanted to give a quick primer and reminder for folks about just how important this midterm session is. All 435 House seats are up for election. Democrats need 24 in order to shift power in the House. 33 of the 50 Senate seats are up for election. Democrats only need two, actually, to switch power. Shout out to those folks in Alabama who helped us um, gain an early victory in December. Um, And so in the House, Democrats are targeting about 91 of Republican-held seats, and Republicans are targeting about 36 Democratic-held seats. And so it will be really important for folks to be paying attention to their local races and being um, really engaged in their congressional districts, especially if you're any of those targeted places. But of course, as always, it's not just federal elections and federal governance that matters to us. District attorneys are up for election all across the country. Um, If you take a look at color of change and their pack work around um, uh, district attorneys and engaging people in that work. That's a great place to go if you want to learn more about who's running in uh, in your district or your state. Um, state houses, we have the opportunity to change power uh, in state legislatures, state houses of representatives, state assemblies, state senates, and also in governor's mansions. And this is really, really important. If you have been listening to Pod Save the People for a while now, you'll remember early Early on in one of our episodes, we heard from someone from the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, um, and they are focused on what will happen after the 2020 census um, and reversing the effects of gerrymandering that we have already discussed on this podcast, but of course, that are... um, wreaking havoc all across the country. Uh, but the time to be paying attention to that is not just in 2020 when we're taking the, cen- the, the census, but right now in 2018, because the um, ways in which states are governed and the parties by which states are governed will have huge influence on how um, redistricting occurs across the country. And of course, that will determine how many representatives you get in Congress, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so there are 13 targets um, uh, that Democrats are taking on in terms of trying to win back governor's mansions. All 13 of these are states that Barack Obama won uh, when he was running for re-election in 2012. So definitely give all of those things a look. Um, We're encouraged by the fact that we kept the governorship in Virginia and that we were able to gain a Democratic governor in New Jersey. Um, But 33 of the 50 governors in the country right now are Republicans. And that will mean um, absolute 
issues for us when we looked forward in 2020 and beyond in terms of redistricting, um, as well as the ways in which those policies affect us in our everyday lives. So I just wanted to start the year off with some real clarity, a little bit of electoral math, and to sound the alarm once again on how important these midterms are going to be. It's absolutely critical. And, you know, as you mentioned, Brittany, so many of these state level races uh, are going to be happening, whether it's for the governorship, state legislature, and, you know, that is where so much uh, of policymaking happens that impacts our lives from uh, minimum wage laws to uh, voting rights to criminal justice reform and mass incarceration. You know, all of that uh, is on the ballot, you know, this, this upcoming November. And not to mention, if you are in particular states, there'll be ballot initiatives that will be incredibly important. Uh, you know, we mentioned Florida is, is one of those that, that hopefully will have this measure on the ballot, uh, which will have huge implications for uh, the political dynamics in Florida and for voting rights uh, writ large. Uh, so, you know, this is one of those uh, elections that could really represent a sea change uh, and a change of course in terms of the direction of this country and the direction of uh, issues of equity and justice. And, you know, I'm interested to see how the Republicans will use the distance from Trump to help them when the midterms come up. So you look at Bannon right now, who is seemingly on the outs, but the Republicans are, are not idiots. And when you think about some of the recent statements they've, they've made about Bannon, uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, he said that Bannon's political demise is, quote, a positive development for us. And we can get back to work nominating good electable candidates who can win the general election is that it'll be, you know, the Republicans realize that Trump's approval rating is really low, so they won't necessarily be campaigning about their proximity to him. But I could totally see them campaigning about like, oh, well, all the bad people are out of Washington now. The people like Bannon and Stephen Miller, all these personalities that we've seen alongside Trump with this idea that they could be the ones to sort of move us forward or wrangle in some sort of era of, of good governing. And we can't be seduced by that. So it'll be important that people's memory doesn't shift uh, by the time the midterms come or that we don't allow Trump to suddenly like repivot himself as somebody who actually cares or most importantly, the Republicans who like have tried to gut every edifice that we have to uphold like social justice or anything that we have to think about like our commitments to welfare and the well-being of whole communities. So my piece of news is an article that was published in the National Review last week called Don't Take the Wrong Lessons from New York City's Murder Drop. Uh, it was published by Heather McDonald, uh, who is somebody who has been a prolific writer uh, on topics of criminal justice and policing and who has been very prominent uh, in this conversation about uh, policing and taken the side that essentially that aggressive policing is uh, it is nothing, there's nothing wrong about aggressive policing, about racially discriminatory policing, that actually racial bias in policing doesn't exist, uh, and that people who are uh, trying to hold the police accountable, uh, telling truths about what about police violence and about the issues in policing, that that essentially uh, is propaganda or is not true. That's sort of her position. She wrote the book War on Cops. Uh, and uh, was one of the chief proponents of the Ferguson effect theory, um, which claimed that protests against policing were somehow making people less safe. Uh, and now she comes out with this article, uh, which is in defense of what she calls proactive policing and stop and frisk in New York. 
Uh, and so this comes on the heels of a number of different articles that have come out and studies which have shown that with the dramatic reduction in stop and frisk, uh, 90-something percent reduction in stop and frisk, uh, some of the fears that uh, were raised early on about that reform, that it would somehow lead to increases in crime, uh, never sort of came to bear and that the crime rate continues to fall in New York City. And so in her article, what she says is that uh, she makes the case that the reduction in crime in New York City is actually because of gentrification and because, in particular, that Black communities were being replaced with uh, sort of upscale white uh, folks who are moving into neighborhoods and that that replacement of Black folks uh, inherently, she makes the case that that made those neighborhoods safer. Um, and so I bring this article to the conversation because I think the theory of uh, gentrification and the replacement of black bodies with white bodies, somehow reducing crime inherently, um, is something that I think a lot of people uh, actually buy into uh, and believe. Uh, and yet when you interrogate the the case that she makes in this article, uh, it is so woefully um, so woefully wrong uh, when you look at the actual data and what the data says. So I'm just going to take a couple of pieces of her argument uh, and then compare them to the actual data. So her central argument that changes in the demographic composition of New York City uh, that replaced Black communities with more diverse and more white communities, um, that that somehow reduced crime. But actually what you find is that when you look at the demographic data, uh, the Black population has stayed relatively constant over the past several decades in New York City. So uh, it has gone from about 28% Black New York City uh, several decades ago to about 25% Black today. Uh, meanwhile, the white population has actually declined significantly more, has declined about 8% over that time period. Uh, and so the argument on its face, very, very quickly, you could see uh, that in fact, the black population has not significantly reduced while the crime rate has. So, I mean, that just basically throws that, that whole argument into contention. Um, but then you dive deeper into some of the neighborhoods that she cites. Um, so she cites Brooklyn's Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood. She cites Bushwick. Uh, she cites Brownsville, Ocean Hill, uh, and makes the case that these neighborhoods used to be predominantly black, and now that they are predominantly white, uh, the crime rate has fallen. Uh, but even some of these neighborhoods, Brownsville, Ocean Hill, uh, continues to be uh, overwhelmingly black. Uh, in neighborhoods Bushwick and in Bedford-Stuyvesant, while there has been some demographic change, they actually have had lower crime declines uh, than areas that have remained predominantly black. Uh, and so, you know, I... I think it's important that we actually look at the data uh, when we're presented with these narratives about crime and why crime is declining, narratives that tend to justify or seek to justify aggressive policing. Because again and again and again, when you actually look at the data, uh, these narratives just do not comport with the facts um, and seem to only have a platform because of the underlying biases and assumptions that so many people buy into. Yeah, I think as you said, Sam, and as you pointed out, the the piece and and Heather McDonald's work more broadly is just like has no empirical grounding is like very selective in what it, it points out and tries to use as evidence to like propagate these false claims um, and is not looking holistically uh, at what's happening. And it, and it's trying to suggest, you know, the thing about most of this is that what she does is conflate sort of misconflate this idea that, 
holding police accountable somehow reflects like anti-cop sentiment. And, and I think that's something on the right that is continuously espoused, right? This idea that like Black Lives Matter is anti-cop, the left is anti-cop, the progressives are anti-cop. Um, and it, it, the suggestion implicit within that is that we should simply accept and not say anything when unarmed Black people are killed by police. Right. And that in as the way that she describes it, if we, you know, the, the outrage after Freddie Gray and the outrage after Laquan McDonald and the outrage after Michael Brown, that is what is responsible for uh, so much of this like anti-cop rhetoric. And it's like, well, are you then suggesting that we shouldn't say anything? Are you then suggesting that we should accept, you know, simply accept the fact that, uh, Black folks are being killed by police, but and and not even just black folks, right? That people are being killed by police at extraordinarily unsettling rates. You know, this is the third year in a row that almost a thousand people have been killed by police in this country. And and the idea that we should simply accept it without saying anything, and then the idea that saying something and bringing attention to that and saying that people should be held accountable for these horrendous actions reflects an anti-cop. Uh, sensibility is is simply untrue. Um, and, you know, we go on and on, but uh, this woman is like really dangerous more than anything, right? And it's dangerous of the National Review to publish something like this. And it's dangerous because it is, it's, it's suggesting that we simply lie down and accept whatever the police do to us and anything that we say uh, should, you know, means that we want, uh, you know, anarchy. And that's, that's just not the case. The thing that I think of is just how incredible it is that people just can't imagine black people being anything but violent. That it can't be that like crime just went down. It can't be that like people have more resources. It can't like that just cannot be people's idea. Like it has to be some other accounting for the reason crime went down. It can't be that black people weren't violent. And like, I think this is actually low key, really seductive. And there are a lot of people, which I'm happy you brought it up, Sam. There are a lot of people who I think like, they heard that and they're like, oh, wow, like, you're right. Like, we should make, like, gentrification actually has, like, a positive impact and crime is one of them. And, like, nobody will talk about this, but look at her being the truth teller. You're like, no, like, she made it up. Like, that's not real. But it's so seductive because it's being offered on the, like, on an already corrupt foundation of, of this thought being, like, of anti-Black thoughts being everywhere. So uh, I think about this as, like, a great example of, really insidious thought that's easily that easily take takes hold when not addressed. And like to build on that, you know, I think about all of the data that we put together that so many other people have put together, uh, all of the incredible scholarship that has been done uh, since 2014, looking at this issue of policing and police violence, uh, really drawing solid scientific conclusions about how to address this issue. And then on the other side of that debate, uh, there really isn't a strong scientific backing. You know, this is somebody who is one of the chief sort of intellectual foundations of the sort of war on cops, Ferguson effect, Blue Lives Matter crowd. Like she's one of their like top intellectual figures na nation nationwide. And 
yet, like when you interrogate her narratives, they just don't have any solid grounding in science. It is all assumption, stereotype couched as science. Uh, and this is something that isn't new. I think about, you know, the scientific racism in the 1920s. Uh, and there's a long legacy of uh, racism and, uh, you know, stereotypes that are couched in the language of science without any rigorous science applied to actually answering questions about how to, uh, about these issues of crime and safety. I think this is a moment to remind people that we talk about race all the time for a reason. It is not because we are not exhausted by it, because we are. It is because racism is real and it would be incorrect, inaccurate, and irresponsible to pretend as though racism did not affect all of the issues that we talk about. From science and fairness and data, to net neutrality and access to the internet, to culture, society, politics, all of it sits on a foundation of the very racism that was central to America's founding. It would be very easy not to talk about race if racism weren't still real, but it is. And so that is why we have to be responsible and not just the four of us in the new segment, but all of us listening. Um, we have to be responsible to take that lens and to take that magnifying glass onto everything and ask these critical questions. So over the course of the holidays and particularly over the course of this cold snap that much of the East Coast has been experiencing, uh, I've been thinking a lot about homelessness and homeless shelters and issues of housing kind of more broadly. And for folks who live in cities, we can find ourselves kind of becoming inured to homelessness because unfortunately, uh, it's often a normal fixture of uh, different cities' landscapes. And, you know, there's typically over 500,000 people experiencing homelessness in the United States at a time, which in and of itself is an egregious number. But in D.C., where I live and where Brittany lives, um, it has the highest homelessness rate in the country. Uh, and this is according to a 2016 survey from the U.S. Mayors, U.S. Conference of Mayors. Um, and at 124 people per 10,000, the city's homelessness rate is more than double that of the national average. And there, there are a lot of reasons for this, right? So, but one of the biggest reasons is that uh, in D.C., low, low-cost housing has virtually disappeared in ways that I don't think we fully appreciate. Uh, the median monthly rent is more than $1,300, according to data by the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. Um, and, and I think that people know that it's expensive, but for, for context of the ways that that shapes every other facet of your life, there are over 26,000 households in Washington, D.C. that are spending more than half of their income on rent. And that affects 20% of children in this city, right? Like, and, and that is that is an absurd number. 26,000 households spending more than half of their income on rent. Uh, and the thing about that is when you spend half your income on rent, uh, alone by itself, one incident, whether it be losing a job or getting sick or getting arrested, that can throw an entire family into homelessness, right? Because all it takes is one thing for for your your situation to be completely different. Uh, and furthermore, it's not always as simple. Uh, I think sometimes people are like, oh, well, you know, homelessness is bad, but this is why we have homeless shelters. But uh, homeless shelters are 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 very complicated, uh, and we should do an episode sort of unpacking homelessness more broadly. But but a lot of people who are homeless or experiencing homelessness don't go to homeless shelters because uh, they experience abuse there. 
um, particularly women and children, that they often have to choose between keeping their stuff and going into the shelter because not all shelters allow them to bring all their stuff. Um, and I bring this up because part of what I've been thinking about is that, you know, over the course of the holidays and, re- and throughout the year, people volunteer at soup kitchens, people bring their church or their children or their school. Um, and it's often done with young people as this form of community service, which in and of itself is fine, but it's worth asking how often are we accompanying those experiences with a broader conversation about the systemic reasons that homelessness exists, right? Like how are, how are we bringing up inadequate mental illness treatment resources or housing segregation or evictions or any of the other larger systemic reasons that homelessness exists? Because if we don't, my fear is that, you know, you bring a young person to serve in the soup kitchen and it's like, look, get perspective, help people who are less fortunate than you. But if you're not actively having a conversation with that person about why these people are in this situation, that's when people fall into the trap of uh, race and class-based pathology. And it's like, oh, well, this person just isn't like me because they don't work as hard and they, you know, or they're lazy or, you know, people make up their own assumptions, which can be incredibly dangerous in young people coming to misunderstand why homelessness and poverty exist. I'm really glad you brought this up, especially as we're experiencing bitter cold uh, all across the country, which, by the way, is not a reason to believe that global warming doesn't exist. It's just where we are right now. Um, But especially given how cold it is outside, this is a real threat. Um, Homelessness is life and death for people every single day. And the risk is heightened when you are dealing with weather like this. And I have been, too, been thinking about it in the context of the holidays, right? I used to um, have to lead major fundraising efforts for the organization that I ran um, at home in St. Louis. And um, I know, as well as lots of other people who work in nonprofits or in the charitable giving space, that nearly a third of of all charitable giving happens in December because people wait to make donations at the end of the year. Um, And actually 12% of all financial gifts occur in the last three days of the year alone. Um, And so similar to volunteerism, um, there is a spirit of giving that kind of sweeps across the country for a few weeks at the end of the year. And it's great for that time. But what happens in the other 11 months of the year? Um, Who's committed? And to your point, Clint, how are they committed? Because that really brought to mind two things. One, again, we have to be cognizant all year round. There's a really powerful commercial that I saw the other day, actually, of um, someone, someone in a shelter, I think, singing, you know, don't you forget about me. And there's one scene during Christmas time where it's full of people and love and joy. And then a couple of days later, it's empty. Um But it also is a reminder that charity will never replace systemic solidarity. I talk about this all the time. It is the difference between packing a lunch for 500 hungry people in your neighborhood or actually recognizing that folks live in a food desert and there are systemic ways to address said food desert by creating access to healthy foods, making sure that the costs of those foods are not um, skyrocketing beyond belief, which of course we know can help lead to gentrification, um, and that the people in that neighborhood are actually employed at said outlets. Um, so, you know, similarly, it's one thing to house people for a night. It's another thing uh, to build equitable uh, housing, 
make sure that people have real access to it, make sure that people have access to the health care that can keep them employed and the jobs that can help them pay rent in these places um, and eventually access to home ownership if that's what they so desire. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought this up, especially now that the holidays are over and we often forget about this conversation, but we cannot say it enough. Charity will never, ever replace systemic solidarity um, and systemic solutions to our greatest challenges. And along those lines, Brittany, I'm looking at this article and one of the things that struck that struck me was the fact that Washington, D.C. has the highest homelessness rate in the United States. And it's it's particularly striking when you look at, you know, some of the trends going up over time. So in D.C., uh, homelessness was up 14 percent from 2015 to 16, and then it's been up over 34 percent since 2009. Uh, and then in terms of solutions, you know, Mayor Bowser has pledged to place 400 homeless residents in per- permanent housing uh, by mid-January. And, and I think that, you know, obviously a housing first approach uh, is, at least from the research that I've seen, the best solution to this. Um, but 400 is just such a small fraction of, you know, the total scale of this problem. Uh, there are 124 homeless people per every 10,000 in D.C. Uh, and so... You know, the question is, what will it take to make sure that every single person who doesn't have a home is placed in permanent housing? And what level of resources does that take? What type of infrastructure needs to be built? Um, and what I haven't seen is a clear plan to do all of those things, or at least to present, you know, this is what it would take to do that so that we could rally behind it. And I'm hopeful that uh, elected leaders, not only in D.C., but in many different cities, uh, will sort of show that courage to to implement such a plan because I think it's unacceptable, completely unacceptable to have people, not only when it's super cold, but especially when it's really cold, um, without a place uh, to stay. And when we think about homelessness, you know, people often come up with solutions in the face of a crisis. And in San Diego and parts of California, there was just a big crisis because there was a hepatitis A outbreak. You can get immunized against hepatitis A. It's a two-shot treatment. You have to come once, uh, let it wait, then come again. And there was a huge outbreak. It spread through sex and and sharing needles and uh, oral, like fecal, um, like anal, oral, fecal transmission too. And it is, you know, suddenly people are like, wow, I think that the homeless population should like have access to toilets and places to wash. And, And like all of the things are important. But there could have actually just been a strong strategy around helping people get homes and like helping people access hygiene in the absence of an outbreak like this. And it was one of the biggest hepatitis A outbreaks in the country. It spread from San Diego to L.A. to to a lot of California, literally because people had just sort of forgotten about the homeless population until there was a crisis. So when I think about so many issues, like we can't let it reach crisis level before we come up with the best solutions that we have. And just a reminder for folks, um, if you have not, speaking of all of the things that we're speaking to, especially regarding housing, if you have not read uh, Matthew Desmond's Evicted, uh, you absolutely should. Won the Pulitzer Prize last year. Um, one of the most powerful books and one of the most humane books in, in explaining why poverty exists. And he has this part where that always stuck out to me, um, where he says, in you know, he talks about how Black men have been disproportionately affected by incarceration, but he talks about how black women are disproportionately affected by evictions. And he says that poor black men are locked up while poor black women are locked out. Right. And and that kind of just captures the, you know, to Brittany's point before, why we bring race up all the time is because it affects every facet of our social and political landscape. And and I thought that that quote from 
uh, Matt Desmond really captured the the nature of how those two systems are operating. So my news is about uh, heat and infrastructure. So in uh, Baltimore, it's it's made a lot of the national news. Uh, there were many schools that were uh, open, but there was no functional heat. So people saw pictures and videos of kids in in coats and and people trying to teach in in cold conditions. I used to be the chief human capital for the school system in Baltimore. And what people don't often understand is that we have not made investments in infrastructure in cities and school systems in a very long time. So when you think about the Baltimore City Public School System, it's like people knew the boilers were old. They've been old for, they didn't just get old yesterday. People knew that the heat system was struggling, that like a lot of the windows don't have insulation. But because the school system's not adequately funded, there's a lot of deferred maintenance. So if it's not sort of an emergency right now, people are like, well, we'll just do it when we have money. And this is one of the longest periods in in recent history in the city of Baltimore where it's been uh, really low temperatures for consistent weeks. And, and this sort of winter holiday was abnormal because the schools were just closed for a really long time, whereas normally in between New Year's and or Christmas and New Year's, there's like some sort of period where schools are open a little bit, but because of the way the holidays fell, they weren't. So there was like nobody running water in buildings. There were people going out to check the buildings. But either way, it led to this. And what you see is people like not necessarily understanding. So they're like trying to call the school board and yelling. And it's like the reality is like the board is doing the best they can with the resources that they have. That Like they can't make the money. So like unless the state of Maryland who funds the school system in Baltimore or the city, which doesn't give a lot to the, the school system at all, monetarily, until their contributions change, it'll always be this sort of catch up. So what they likely did to bring heat to the schools, schools uh, will open this week with heat mostly, like the majority of them, is that they just deferred maintenance on other stuff. So I remember when I was a chief human capital, like we were like, you know, I don't know if we can fix that elevator. I don't know if we can replace those doors because just because there's not enough money, and it's only when poor kids and marginalized kids are are in question, is there never enough resources to go around? And this is not only school systems, but there's a great article that talks about public housing in New York City and how the infrastructure around heat is also really bad there. But the infrastructure stuff isn't very sexy. People don't really pay attention to it until you get a crisis like you did in Baltimore. So this reminds me of the fact that so many resources are often spent on police and prisons and giving tax breaks to the wealthy and all of these things that actually either are not needed or actively make people's lives and families and communities worse. Uh, instead of investing in education, investing in uh, the full breadth of uh, resources to expand people's opportunity. Uh, and I think in that context where there's a poverty of resources, oftentimes uh, there's only enough money to fund one thing at a time. Um, and I think that's just not the approach that we take uh, when we're talking about you know, things that impact wealthy communities. Um, you know, with wealthy communities, they get the tax break that they wanted. And by the way, they repealed this individual mandate and they repealed the estate tax and they impacted the corporate tax. Uh, and, you know, all of those things, they got their full menu that they really wanted in this, in this tax bill. Uh, meanwhile, you know, Puerto Rico still, uh, about half of Puerto Rico does not have electricity. We're seeing in school systems across and the, US the country. And the US Virgin well, Islands, yep. And the U.S. Virgin Islands, exactly. And we're seeing in school systems across the country where cities, uh, and this may not be the case for Baltimore because the state funds the school system, but certainly in in most cities, um, 
either half or 40% of the city's general fund is going to police. Uh, and, you know, there is little money left over for after-school programs, for schools, for programs that impact and improve kids' lives. And so I think ultimately this is about choices, about priorities, and uh, this reflects uh, a reality in which those priorities are not currently aligned with uh, equity and justice or with common sense and what's needed to impact and improve uh, our kids and families. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
And now my conversation with the crew from the Goucher Prison Education Program. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Pod Save the People. Excited to have you all here today. Thank you for having us. Let's start with introductions. We'll start with you and go around. So I'm Amy Rosa. I'm the director of the Goucher Prison Education Partnership. I'm Ramika Robinson-Peoples. I am the uh, staff member coordinator planning a special projects and also a Goucher um, student. I'm Dante Small. I'm an alum of GPEP and a current Goucher student, senior. My name is Saquon Merritt. I'm a former Goucher student, GPEP student. And what is GPEP? Uh, GPEP is the Goucher Prison Education Partnership. Um, it's a division of Goucher College. Um, Goucher's an amazing liberal arts college um, that's been in Baltimore since the 1880s, and we have about 1,500 undergraduates on the main campus. And then GPEP expands the college to include 100 undergraduates who also are uh, men and women incarcerated in Maryland state prisons. So it is for people who are currently incarcerated. Exactly. So, so our students are men and women currently in prison, and we bring um, amazing professors, mostly Goucher professors, sometimes great professors from other local schools, Hopkins, Micah, Stevenson, um, out to lead sections of Goucher classes at the prison. Um, the students at the prison who take the college classes are Goucher students. They have Goucher transcripts. They earn Goucher credits. Um, and they can, if they're there long enough, earn a Goucher degree. And how do, how do people, what are the entry criteria? Can anybody, can any crime like make you a participant in the program? That's a good question. So, um, so we are at uh, two prisons. Um, if you are at those prisons, you are, are eligible they? to apply. These are where, where are, are they? What are the prisons? Oh, we're, so we're two prisons. We're at the Maryland Correctional Institution Jessup, and the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women. So one is a women's prison, one is a men's prison, both in Jessup. Um, anyone at those prisons can apply. Um, we are, and these might sound like um, they're in contrast, but we are both committed to. Um, observing the rigorous academic standards that Goucher is known for, and at the same time creating a bridge to college. So the way we do that is um, we have an admissions process. We look at persistence and commitment in that process. Um, and then we accept students. Um, and if we um, accept you, only then do we look at your placement exams. And that tells us if you're academically ready for Goucher classes. At that point, if you're ready for Goucher classes, you go straight into those classes. If you need a little more support, you go into our college preparatory program. You take some classes in academic writing and critical reading and, in, and or in math. And then you um, end up moving from there into our college classes. So um, and in fact, um, if you don't have a GED, uh, we would refer you back to the day school that already exists that the Maryland Department of Labor Licensing and Regulation runs at the prison. You could get your GED at the prison and then go into our prep and then move on to get your classes. And in our last cohorts, more than half of our students got their GED at the prison um, and are now will leave prison um, as college students or college graduates. What are the demographics of people in the program? So um, the, the um, it, it reflects... Um, the prison population in Maryland and the United States. So, um, at our, it's, it, um, there are the men's prison is um, overwhelmingly African American. The students are um, there are other students of other ethnicities in terms of that question, but um, overwhelmingly African American, but also white students and Latino students. Um, there are. Um, uh, they're between at the, at the women's prison, and this is true nationally. Um, there are still a significant overrepresentation in the women's prison population in the United States of African American women, but it's not as um, overrepresented. So it's about half African American women, about half white women, and a, and a little bit of um, other people of other backgrounds uh, mixed in. Um, and in terms of ages, the students are between, they could be anywhere between like 18 and 70. Our students are currently between, I think, 23 and 68 years old. And almost. 
A large number of our students live below the poverty line before they came to prison, and more than half of our students are parents of school-age children. It's actually 70% of our students were parents of school-age children at the time of arrest, and that's also reflective. In the United States, more than half of the people we incarcerate are parents of school-age children. And really, last question for a minute is— um, <laughs> Do you, Isn't the whole thing going to be you asking do students? <laughs> oh, last question to you for a minute is: uh, Do students take courses like in the prison? Do they come on campus to take courses? Like, how does that work when they're in the? So the, the students the can't are are incarcerated in Maryland. They they are not able to leave the prison to come to the campus. So we bring the campus to them. So we bring incredible fr- professors. They teach sections of Goucher classes. So. A couple of people at this table have taken classes with um, Professor Jamie Mullaney, who is a sociologist at Goucher, and she was often teaching the same section she was teaching with us at the prisons, another section on the main campus. Um, and uh, and then we also bring office hours, academic advising, um, academic um, tutoring, um, other kinds of supports that people need to be successful and really part of the college community out to the prisons. That's dope. Dante, <laughs> we met a year ago, and it and we got to talk just a little bit, and I learned about the program. Are you from Baltimore? No, I'm from the Bronx, New York. The Bronx. Mm-hmm. I taught in East New York, Brooklyn. Oh, really? Brooklyn's better than the Bronx. No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you get to the program? So um, I graduated school from here. I graduated from Overly High, um, Overly High School in, a col- in, in accounting, excuse me. And um, I was incarcerated six months after. Uh, I really didn't have too much direction after high school. I didn't have, like, uh, it was no, like, path carved out. It was just, like, you graduate and you're on your own. Um, and I and I f- fell into one of the, uh, the trap holes that you were falling, just being a kid in, in the inner city. Um, so I was incarcerated for first-year assault with the uh, use of a handgun. Um, and I was sentenced to 20 years. I was suspended with 12. Um, and once I was, uh, convicted, uh, I just had to find ways to turn that negative into a positive. So for me, that meant how am I going to get out of here? And from, you know, just having conversations with individuals in the bullpen, the best way, uh, that seemed to be true was to like stay out of trouble, um, get as many programs as you can underneath your belt and, Another personal goal for me at that point in time was I knew I didn't really have the academic skills that I needed to like uh, like integ- be integrated into like the, the working sector. Is there a class that sticks out to you that you remember from the program? Yeah, uh, I'll have to say Steve DeCurley's class, um, the philosophy class, and it was uh, we had went over the Thirteenth Amendment in an article, and like that really like. It just like really like stuck with me. Why? Or like what stuck with you? Just the fact that it was it's an amendment that 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 claims to abolish slavery, but then there's this exception in this amendment. And um, working in the MCE shops and just like seeing like that black people are overrepresented in the present system, it just like brought everything in context for me. That like, okay, I'm a product of my environment, and this was some kind of plan. You know what I mean? Like, the reason I'm here is not, like, not not that I'm not taking responsibility, but, like, there's, there's, there's systems in place that, for young brothers like myself, we fall victim to. 
And you are you are currently a gotcha student. Yes, I'm a senior computer science major and sociology minor. Got it. Now, Ramika, what was your journey to the program? Um, my journey to the program was um, almost similar to um, Dante's. Um, I arrived um, in the institution um, with a 20-year sentence. And when I first got there, the first seven years of my life, um, psychologically, I blacked out. And for seven years of my life, I was just going and coming and just going and coming, really trying to figure out how to sort things out and try to work things out in my life and what would be my plan um, from when that day came where I was released. Um, I remember waking up one day and I was actually dreaming and it was a really good dream. (laughs) And the loudspeaker came on and was like, oh, it's feed up, feed up time, feed up time. And what is feed up time? That's like lunch, breakfast, dinner. And so I never attend. I never went to breakfast and I never went to lunch. I was kind of sort of in depression. So the only meal I could make was dinner. And um, the loudspeaker came on and woke me up out of my dream. And I was facing the wall. And I just remember turning over on my back, looking at the ceiling and saying, I am really incarcerated. Like it Hmm. just hit me that moment. And so... Um, after I cried, <laughs> I got myself together and I said, you know what, this like can't be life for me. Like I was so frustrated to be waking up from a dream that was just so those dreams that you have that you literally feel like you're living in that moment. Mm-hmm. was one of those dreams. And to have that that dream and then be awakened by something so just traumatic. Um, I just really felt like I had to do something. There was a sign-up sheet. Um, there was no such thing as the last slot, though. We always signed below the own slot. <laughs> <laughs> we made our own slots. But um, I had signed up for GPAP. I had taken um, a lot of classes there. Um, Anne Arundel Community College. Um, a lot of people had came and they had left. And so they came, they offered two or three classes, and they were like, oh, no more funding, we have to go. And they packed up and they went elsewhere. So I had exhausted all of my educational like resources. So I thought, um, then I signed up for uh, GPAP. And in my mind, um, once I started to research and find out what GPAP was actually about, um, I realized that it was a part of an amazing college. And for me, college was always there as an option but I always felt like it wasn't for me like I just you don't have people well I didn't personally have people um in my life that were like you're smart like they would say oh she's smart oh she's nice but they never said you're smart you need to pursue this here's this material read this over you're capable of doing this like you you can be a part of this so I knew it was there I knew it existed and I felt like internally I had what it take took to be a part of that system but I didn't really have that person pushing me towards that so I kind of like feared it almost was there a course that you remember from GPEP? I do. Um, My favorite course was American History, taught by um, Professor Francois. Um, Yeah, that was the most memorable. What was Um, memorable about it? I learned a lot about history, and it was different from what I had learned in school. The version I learned in school was much cleaner and more like, 
it was had a blanket and a pretty little bow on it and then it you know it existed but this was like raw material and we got down to the the meat like what um dating back to slavery um even um indian tribes and i remember um studying and um studying the material and actually reading it and tears flowing down my face and i felt like enraged and so frustrated because it was like you can actually like the material and the discussion i took that with me and i just I don't know. It filled me in a way. And I mean, it filled me. It was impactful because I realized not only that history does exist, but that I was also able to see the transformation. So um, back then there was chains, there was like bondage, there were, you know, straps and restraints. But today it's the same thing, but it's not the same way. And so um, we learned that and then I was able to learn um, how slavery still exists through housing, through medical, through media. I mean, through everything. And Saquon, what was your journey to the program? Um, in 2012, I arrived at MCIJ with a 25-year sentence, non-parolable sentence for uh, 17 pills of heroin, which was equal up to about two grams. So they gave me a mandatory minimum sentence. And um, I came in June, and when I sat there, I was thinking, like, man, I got to continuously progress. I got I to do something. I just can't let this time get the best of me. So I told myself that I'm not going to let them just sit me away for just any amount of time. So I said, man, I'm going to do something with my life, and I'm going to get out of prison. So I heard about the Goucher program. Uh, like Dante was saying, you know, they had a list. How it goes is, you know, they put like a little, just copies up on the tier and says, sign up for this. You know, you have people that walk past it. Uh, then you have some people that just look at it like, man, uh, kind of like what Ramika was saying. Like, man, this is just another program that they're trying to get. And so I, um, I end up actually missing it. So I seen it coming up and it didn't come on my tier because it's just copies. So these copies are just going around the jail. So if they give it to someone on a tier or it's the responsibility of a CEO to hang it up, it could come down. Anything could happen to it. It's a piece of paper. So mine didn't go up. So um, when I got around to it, three o'clock is count time. Two o'clock, Amy, you had to be in the- What is count uh, for people that don't know? Um, count time is the, when they do the security check to make sure everybody's in the prison. So um, you have to be in a certain area with uh, Amy in order to register or uh, interview for Goucher College. So um, it happened to be that day, the sheet of people names who was on there got lost. But however, Amy was still pushing the administration and saying, well, I have a list of guys that I need to get up here. So I told uh, a lieutenant that I knew that I was on that list. I told a story. (laughs) (laughs) I told a story. I said, I was on that list. I have to get up here. This is a thing that I, I need to get into. I need to be a part of. Um, so they said, well, you contact me and I think another 30 minutes, you tell the CO on your tier to contact me and I'll make sure you get escorted up there because I told you it was approaching count time, which uh, during count time, there's no movement. Everything is shut down. Everybody's at wherever they designated places is so they can uh, make sure they um, get the count done and make sure everybody's where they're supposed every to be. Every day? Every single day. Um, it's about three or four times a day. Yeah, mm-hmm. three or four times a day. So... Um, 
They got me up there. They got me up there. I had a couple of things um, prior to me getting incarcerated that I was using um, for sentencing, and I wanted to show uh, Amy to try to get me through the process of, you know, being accepted into a GPAT program. And um, I ended up eventually getting in. You know, I ended up eventually getting in. And, you know, when I got in, it was just, um, it was helpful. It was helpful. It gave me a sense of, uh, of worth, you know, in prison that I am not just sitting here just dying or just wasting away. I'm in a college program. I am, you know, changing my mindset. I'm, you know, I'm cultivating myself. I'm not just sitting there day in, day out going, like Ramika said, going to breakfast, going to lunch, going to dinner, going to the gym. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. What would you offer in terms of like helping us think differently about either incarceration or the nexus of incarceration and education? One thing I would talk, I think, that is like different than the public perception is time. I think a lot of times when we talk about education in prison, there's an assumption on the um, with a lot of the public. Of course, people would go to class because they've got nothing else to do. And Absolutely. students could talk about that. But I mean, what time did you get up in the morning when you were, Ramika, what time did you get up in the morning when you were in prison? Would you say that's not true? That is what definitely people would say. Is that like, of course, you went to the courses because what else were you doing? So most of our students are booked between school and work from between four to six in the morning till between nine and eleven at night, every day of the week. And Can then you explain have- that? I think uh, nobody understands that. <laughs> so, <laughs> like uh, a routine for for me because I was extremely active um, during my incarceration. I worked in the shop, the one that um, we had mentioned earlier. And um, so just to explain that, so you were a state employee, you made a few dollars a day, yeah. and you, what did you do for them? Um, I ran an embroidery department, so we mm-hmm. did um, we did uh, embroidery for um, State Highway Administration, we did embroidery for DLLR, which is the Department of Labor and License, um, State Police, um, yeah, we did a lot, and then also like odd jobs in between. 
Um, but my day was, uh, I was up at five. I was in the shop by six, 6.30. Um, I worked a full day up until two. Huh. Um, from there, I went to class. So I would sometimes not even change my uniform. I would go to school with my uniform on. Um, some days I would have more than one class in one day that was scheduled on the same day. So I would leave one, go to dinner, go to the next class, and then um, return back to study. <laughs> so um, on a day that I wasn't actively um, participating in class, I would attend study hall, which always fell like in between. Um, it worked out for some reason. I think Amy has something to do with this. But it, it worked out as far as scheduling because I was able to have that study hall time where I can actually like sit mm-hmm. down and like regroup and focus. Did Goucher on run the study hall or did somebody yeah, else run the study hall? Goucher definitely run. Um, GPAP ran oh, the study hall. They had um, tutors come in to tutor um, to tutor us outside of class. And that's also where professor office hours and academic advising are happening for students. Yeah. So, so to say students are very busy, and I think there's a common public per- perception that um, they've got all this free time, but students are actually already working a full-time job, already are trying to parent from inside the prison, are working on court cases, and they're committing easily 30, 40 hours a week to classes, studying, um, supporting other students in, in their studies um, in order to get through college. So it's a, it's, a, um, it's a big lift, and it's not as if there's just the free time. This is like an active choice people are making. And I think for me, that speaks to mm-hmm. the hunger for opportunity and for real opportunity that lets you leave with a real education, lets you leave with real college credits, lets you leave with something real. What was the impact that the classes had on the culture in the, in the jail or prison? Um, so the impact was the impact was positive for the uh, others incarcerated because you had guys actually like, well, where you going at? Like, you know, you're going to college. Like, it was different to see us move, me, Dante, and a couple of other brothers that were kind of like end up developing to, into role models. Were you in class prison. together? Yeah, we was in. Well, we was in the same same jail, same classes. Oh, really? Yeah, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, we was in the same jail, same class, the same time. How big is a class? Um, a class is one class is usually about what 10, 12 guys, maybe. It's the same as the main campus, so it could be anywhere. I mean. It, it could range, but usually between 12 and 25 would be a typical Goucher class. Right. So um, the culture for us, you know, because we were leading other things in the prison, uh, different youth challenges programs. Uh, youth challenge program is a program, is a mentor program, kind of for the younger guys coming in prison, trying to get their mindset on something better. So to see what we were doing coming from work, uh, same clothes. Going to uh, going to college at night was guys was really uh, were really trying to get in the program. I think Amy can uh, tell you how full her mailbox was. She has a mailbox in prison, Goucher mailbox. I remember it's a, it's a little blue mailbox, was it? The dark blue mailbox, and she constantly had papers in there for people trying to get involved in that program. Because you know we come back to the TED, we ain't really. I wasn't, you know, in Tante. Sometimes we couldn't be worried about football. We had papers to do. So um, on, on that aspect, it, it, it encouraged, as I said, that exposure. When you expose people to other things that can be done, they tend to try to do other things opposed to just being exposed to negative, getting high in prison, uh, fighting or, uh, or just, you know, just going nuts, just running your time. Like Ramika said, the first year is just going crazy. There are people who would say that there are like people outside of jails and prisons who like can't afford to go to college, who like, you know, that... Who who did everything right? Who didn't make a mistake? And so, why would we be investing money in 
like a an education program in a prison for people who like did make a bad decision and it costs it seemingly costs more than like free college for people not in in prison so like what would your what would you say to those people this for anybody i would say two things i would to your question i would say there is a crisis in access to education and particularly in access to quality education and higher education and we should and that access to education in prison is one part of that puzzle but actually the corrections officer who's frustrated because their son can't get a loan, their son also deserves to go to college. The um, folks outside in the neighborhood that I live in, Baltimore City, they deserve to go to college. We actually have this larger crisis that needs addressing. And we think of GPEP as a part of that puzzle and a demonstration project and a part of through things like this, pushing that conversation forward. But it should not be just our students who have access. But in fact, we need to answer that question in the United States. And then I think would say the second part of that is, um, so... Um, this question of cost, it costs us about, in Maryland, uh, a conservative estimate about $40,000 a year to incarcerate someone per year. GPEP is costing us less than $6,000 per person per year. Mm. Um, We consistently see in studies that education reduces return to prison recidivism by something like 40%. The Bard Prison Initiative, which is Bard College in New York, has had a division in prison for 15 years, and they see in their alums Nationally, our recidivism rate, people return to prison um, at about 60%, 60%, Bard's former students, their recidivism rate is 4%, hmm. and the graduates is 2%. Wow. And we consistently see the higher the education, the lower the recidivism rate. So there's a huge financial argument. And I would add to that, GPEP is overwhelmingly privately funded. We have amazing individual donors, an army of individual donors, uh, um, amazing group of um, foundations that have come together to support this. So 75-80% of our funding is private funding. A smaller portion of it is um, public Pell Grants. Um, So in addition, um, this is private funding that's going to turn this. Um, So that's like a pretty amazing argument for um, if you're just, and that's if you're just interested in the fiscal responsibility. And then we have do you care about community stability? Do you care about cycles of poverty and incarceration? More than half of the people we incarcerate are parents of school-aged children. Do you want those parents to stay home? Do you think that will make a difference for their kids? We know that college has this huge impact on lifetime earnings and unemployability. Um, what does that mean for an individual? What does that mean for a community like Sandtown, Winchester, where we're, we have, that's the most heavily incarcerated neighborhood in the city? What does it mean, for, mean if um, folks come home and have... Um, good um, living wage jobs that they feel like are meaningful to them? What does it mean if they have an education that they can really engage socially and politically? Um, and what does that mean for their neighbors? And what does that mean for their kids? And what does that mean for, for all of us who, um, who live in Maryland, who are part of these academic communities, who are part of these neighborhood communities? And Amy, how did you get to the program? She <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, so you and I have Teach for American Common. <laughs> Uh, so um, I grew up in New York City. I went to a small liberal arts college, uh, Pomona College in California, and got oh nice. Uh-huh, I got my I got my uh, bachelor's degree there, and I um, taught in the public schools um, for a few years. Um, first in D.C., um, and then I worked worked um, with um, uh, new teachers in um, under resourced schools in New York City, which is where I'm from. And then um, from there, I wanted to think about. I've been thinking a lot about. Um, uh, vulnerable families and um, 
underserved schools and kids, and I wanted to think about those families in different ways. So I started working um, for the Center for Court Innovation in New York, doing restorative justice, educational and therapeutic interventions with court-involved families. Uh, I had the opportunity then to um, teach academic classes at the women's facility at Rikers Island, the big jail in New York. Um, And for me, that was like... um, this cross-section of all these different issues I've been thinking about. I knew this intellectually, but it was so many of my students at Rikers were folks who had not had access. I think my students there and I think my students here would say they made choices that had serious consequences for others and they had responsibility for that. And I would also add to that so many of my students did not have access as young people to the things that I think people need to become um, to become successful adults. And so that was really powerful for me. And then so many of them were parents. And so it was a lot of the issues I'd been thinking about. From there, I ended up at San Quentin, where about um, 300 men are working toward college degrees. And I was part of the college there. And then Goucher launched this division and did a national search. And I, I moved here and have been in, um, been in Baltimore the last six years. One of the questions that we ask everybody on the pod is, what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stayed with you? For me, a piece of advice uh, that I still use today is like, um, so, you know, being incarcerated, you got to learn patience. And um, a lot of times when people say like, yo, when you go home, you know, the key is to like uh, act as if you're still um, bidding, you're still incarcerated in like some way. And it's uh, to me like that help. It, it, it has helped me out a lot, like deal with um, certain uh, issues that may have gone on in my life and understanding that, okay, like these things are going on, but you have to move forward, stay positive, stay focused on the goal. Um, The goal is to get your degree. Um, It's bad, but it'll get better. So um, that's something that uh, advice that I, uh, I hold true to today. And it's just like, you just can't rush the process. You know, you take it day by day, obstacle by obstacle, struggle by struggle. Mine would be to um, to always um, strive for excellence. And I feel like, and I live by that. So when I woke up this morning, my goal was to be a better person than I was yesterday. And I feel like mentally, if I'm always convincing myself um, to be a better person, then I is, is no limit to where I can be. Um, and there's there's no... Um, I'm not placing myself in a box and marginalizing myself. So if I woke up this morning and I said, you did good yesterday, now do better today, you know, and I constantly, I'm, I'm my worst critic, but I try to live every day like it's my last day. Um, so I will say that it is okay to be impatient, to embrace impatience. So for, for me, I think it is important that we advocate for broader change. I think it is important that we're advocating for all kinds of change, including political change. Um, but I've never been patient. And I think that one of the things I love about the Goucher Prison Education Partnership is I think from um, the warden um, to our donors, to the students, um, to the professors, um, we're a group of people coming together to say that we have the resources right now to do something differently. Um, and something that can have like a much larger effect, this immediate positive effect and a much larger positive effect, um, and that there are other paths than the one we're on right now, and we can do things differently right now. Um, and that's, um, for me, like um, inspiring and helps me um, move forward every day. Mine's was uh, get out of my own way. Uh, stop locking myself into a box and uh, 
well, four boxes, uh, you know, uh, how I was, you know, kept doing that in order to generate money for myself throughout the streets of Baltimore. And that was, uh, you know, just kept thinking about selling either coke, dope, weed, or some type of pills and um, continue to educate myself, create more options for myself to do better, to do more legitimately, to uh, live more for uh, my family and for my son. And he told me if I just used my mind, I could take myself anywhere I wanted to go and just stay out of my own way. So that's been my best advice. And where can people go to find more information about TPAP? Thank you for asking. Uh, so uh, we have a website. If you Google um, Goucher Prison Education Partnership, you will find us. But we're at www.goucher.edu slash G-P-E-P. And we, have, um, we hire great faculty. We, are, we have many, many roles for volunteers, and we would not exist without um, volunteer support and also donor support. If someone wants to support a student, um, there's information on the website to do that. And it is, um, the, it is funding that um, creates more opportunity. We have, we have classroom space. We have students. We have, we have hundreds of students on a waiting list. We have faculty who are um, waiting to teach. It's actually um, that financial support that opens up more spots for students. Um, we're actually hiring for a full-time position right now as well. And can people volunteer? Like, do you need volunteers? Yeah, so, so we're a really small staff. We have five full-time staff, uh, and um, we have we have about 100 um, volunteers working with us every year. Everything from um, academic tutoring inside the prison to an amazing volunteer who helps us get um, donations from publishers for our textbooks. But do you still need volunteers? Yes, every, every semester we're— um, And if people go to the website, they can sign up. There is information, that's cool. right. And how can people find you? Like, are you on the internet? Are you, like, on Twitter or Facebook? Uh, they can find me through our website as well. She's <laughs> like— the website. <laughs> Do you not find me on Twitter? Okay. Awesome. Well, thank y'all. Consider you all friends of the pie. Can't wait to have you back. And I appreciate this. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.